welcome to another Saxo Market Call. My name is Soren Otto and today I am joined by our expert in macro and FX strategies, Charo Chanana. Hi Charo. Hello, good morning, good afternoon. So Charo, you're with us from uh, Singapore and I'm in Copenhagen, so I hope that all the te- technical stuff works out. Um, but uh, I, I think today we have a lot to talk about. We're going to start sort of in the western part of the world, talking about the US, Europe, and then we're going to move uh, closer to you. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, China and then also uh, zeroing in on Japan. But I think why don't we just uh, get going because we, as I said, have a lot to talk about. And, I, and we will start yeah. in the US, as I said. Um Sunday, we had a pretty interesting development in the election, which is uh, obviously all the way out in November. But if we look at the Republican race to be the presidential candidate, we saw that uh, Trump managed to eliminate uh, one of his big competitors, uh, DeSantis. Uh, what was it that happened uh, there? I mean, it certainly looks like now the markets have to start preparing for a Trump presidency. It looks like he will be running for the Republican Party. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know if markets are going to be as jittery as they were back in 2016 about uh, that sudden um, announcement that came through uh, about the, the Trump presidency, right? I think we have a lot more time, like you said, we still have a lot, ma- lot many months to go until that November election. So, uh, but I do think the markets will start to price in um, that risk. And um, I think uh, the Fed also potentially could be cautious of overheating the economy in case we were to see that kind of fiscal stimulus come back. Uh, so I think uh, that's really important. And, you know, we we could have, obviously, geopolitics is such a big focus uh, this year anyway, uh, which could get bigger again, you know, with, again, a Trump presidency. So maybe, maybe some safe haven, uh, you know, <laughs> trades could come back in focus as well as we get further confirmation of that. So as you say, we don't really know how the markets will react to this yet and because there is still a long time to go. But obviously it's something that we will track very closely. But something else in the U.S. that's pretty interesting is uh, is the uh, on, in the FX space, which is something you spend a lot of time on, and the dollar trends. Um, we've seen that U.S. core uh, PCE uh, is expected to come in lower uh, after we had a PPI miss. Um what, what what's the status of the U.S. dollar in general? Uh, so, you know, I mean, of course, last week was uh, pretty big in terms of uh, that pushback that has come through on uh, Fed's uh, rate cut expectations, right? I mean, uh, we've seen yields really running higher uh, last week, um, and uh, that has obviously lent some support to the U.S. dollar as well. It has closed higher on the week. Uh, so this week, certainly, again, I mean, you know, markets will continue to uh, struggle to get that answer whether, you know, a March rate cut is really likely. The expectations are actually now, um, you know, the odds are below 50% for a March rate cut. Um, uh, this week is less about Fed. We don't have any Fed speakers because they go on a quiet period. But it's more about data, like you said, the PCE, but also along with that, uh, the Q4 GDP uh, first estimate will be out. Uh, so I think what I've you know repeatedly said when I talk about the dollar is yes we know dollar is in a bearish trend but uh, there are two conditions that need to be met for that bearish trend to be entrenched. 
One is that the Fed has to be cutting rates. And again, like I said, there's quite a bit of volatility around that expectation right now. Uh, we know the Fed is going to cut, but when and how much is still something that the markets continue to debate on. And the second condition is that the um, growth outside the U.S. has to look strong. Now, this is a really important factor, and I think this is going to be something that will be in focus this week. Uh, the U.S. exceptionalism story, which will potentially be reaffirmed by that GDP growth number. You know, the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now model is actually estimating Q4 growth to come in at 2.4%, which is quite a bit higher than where consensus is right now around 2% or so. So there is quite a, a bit of room there for an upside surprise. Um, and PCE, yes, you know, like you correctly pointed out, the some elements of PPI that go into that, um, uh, you know, calculation of PCE, core PCE particularly. And if you look at longer term trends, if you look at three month, six month annualized trends, uh, there is um, a growing uh, disinflation narrative coming out of that. There is also a narrative coming out that inflation can actually go back down to 2% pretty quickly, which is the Fed's target. Uh, so overall, everything reaffirming soft landing hopes, you know, that was really the story driving markets last week as well with that, specifically on Friday with that University of Michigan survey report where sentiment picked up, inflation expectations went down. So, uh, you know, if that kind of continues with this GDP data, with this PCE data this week, I would say that, you know, continues to point to soft landing and usually soft landing will mean a softer dollar. But that only happens when, like I said, you know, the second condition that growth outside of the U.S. has to look strong. Um, but what happens, you know, when European PMIs do this week as well, if they look much worse, um, you know, what do you sell the dollar against if the BOJ continues to under deliver on those hawkish expectations that have been built up a little bit. If UK consumer confidence continues to be bad, there's, you know, I mean, all that, you know, Australia, I would say RBA rate curve still has a lot more potential for a dovish reinforcement there. So what do you sell the dollar against really? There's no, no good alternative at the moment, and that could really keep the dollar supported. So really, it's a it's a game about figuring out uh, when when rate cuts uh, will happen and whether that's uh, gonna have any impact on on the dollar. One thing that 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 might may actually move it, as you say, is something around how does the outside world to the U.S. look. And here we have a a meeting uh, at the ECB, to, uh, not not today, but this week. What uh, what's your expectations for that, and could that impact the dollar? Uh, so we've, we've heard a lot from ECB officials um, over the last week uh, from Lagarde herself as well. Uh, so I think it's um, market is pretty much priced in what to expect from the ECB this week. You know, the inflation picture in the Eurozone, that has improved quite a bit. You know, headline CPI has, is down to 2.9% year on year in December compared to what 8 or 9% at the start of 2023. Um, so uh, despite that, like I said, you know, last week we got quite a lot of pushback from ECB officials um, hinting that uh, easing is uh, unlikely to begin before summer. So maybe June or July. 
compared to market expectations, which are right now for um, you know the first rate cut to come through somewhere in April or so. Uh, so I think obviously geopolitics is a big concern um, you know, with the Red Sea tensions being particularly important for Eurozone in terms of what it means for goods inflation or energy costs. But so far, whatever impact we've seen there, um, uh, it is unlikely to you know filter through to um, goods inflation. Uh, shipping is really a very, very small percentage of the, the goods inflation. Uh, so I think um, as much as ECB tries to push back um, on those rate cut expectations, you know, um, I think the as our you know chief investment officer Steen Jakobsen, he was also just saying on our internal call uh, this morning that um, it could be a huge mistake from the ECB if we, they were to wait that long to come uh, for their first rate cut, you know, by June, because high real rates are really going to hamper a lot on the growth front. So uh, I would say markets will continue to find it difficult to um, accept that rhetoric. Um, plus, as well, as I said earlier, you know, we, I think there's more important to watch um, what comes out in terms of the, the PMI numbers, say, for example. And if there is a considerable weakness there, there's also German IFO numbers. If, if things like that continue to show uh, weakness, markets may only price in actually a greater probability of an April rate cut rather than listening to ECB officials and lowering it at this point. So I would say, you know, in, in terms of, you know, FX implications, I would think the risk reward for the euro is still uh, tilted uh, towards the downside a little bit. Another thing that's very important to pay attention to in these weeks is the earnings season. As earnings season. I know that we're not in the biggest of all the weeks, yet, but we still have some uh, pretty important earnings coming out this week. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the market looking at uh, uh, what it's doing, the S&P 500 at a record high now, um, certainly the artificial intelligence story has again come to the forefront driving um, the equity markets right now, uh, which again begs the question on how far can those magnificent seven strokes, uh, stocks continue to drive uh, the U.S. equities because the risks are also becoming too concentrated uh, with this kind of a narrow leadership. Uh, so I think the big test, uh, whether those big tech companies are able to deliver those huge earnings expectations or not. So we are currently still not in the week of um, uh, big tech earnings. Uh, that only starts, I would say, I think next week. Uh, but we do get uh, something like Netflix and Tesla. They'll be a little bit of a precursor to uh, really what's happening in that tech space. I mean, uh, obviously, Netflix is no more really a tech company. They've transitioned a lot from there. Um, it, I, I would say it's more a sign of what's happening to the consumer. But uh, still, I think uh, these these will be the bellwethers of the um, uh, equity indices. Uh, so I think very important to watch what happens with Netflix and Tesla. But I'm sure there are a lot of other companies that are also reporting um, earnings this week. All right, Charu, let's uh, move from the Western world and over to the regions uh, slightly closer to you. Let's uh, talk, uh, we'll talk Japan in a moment. I just want to have a few thoughts around China because China is really continuing to uh, to disappoint in terms of their uh, economic data and also Chinese stocks have had a very hard time here in the 
in 2024. What what's going on there? Um, what's going on is obviously um, there's it's I would say the biggest thing that's going on is what's happening in the property sector. So you know, last week we had more disappointing data. Uh, we had disappointing GDP numbers, but more importantly, I would say we had those disappointing home sales numbers. So there's that's that's something that's been reverberating through the economy. The effect of what's happening in the property sector is spilling over through other parts of the economy as well. Uh, for example, obviously, the consumer, where we are seeing this major lack of confidence, um, and that's particularly because a huge amount of savings, uh, consumer savings in China have been uh, you know, put in the property sector. And when with this kind of a bleak outlook to that sector, of course, you know, the purchasing power of the consumers has been impacted. Uh, that's that's the big story. A lot of it is also, you know, because of the manufacturing that has been moving out, uh, because of the shift happening in supply chains. Um, and I would say also the banks and this, uh, you know, being exposed to that, um, the property sector crisis, I think uh, uh, that that's broadly really what's going on. And uh, I think the second thing is um, that the stimulus efforts from the Chinese authorities have continued to underwhelm. So I think uh, that's something we we had expected and we continue to expect, um, uh, you know, because we have noted that, uh, you know, Chinese authorities have shifted focus to, you know, deleveraging. And uh, that does mean that uh, obviously there's a lot of focus on transformation of the economy. Uh, so that does mean that, you know, a big bank stimulus remains unlikely. And uh, uh, very recently, there's also a huge focus on um, stabilizing the Chinese yuan. So, um, you know, if they were to announce any massive easing measures, that that could obviously hamper uh, the yuan outlook as well. So uh, with these two big focus in mind, um, uh, we still do not expect a huge stimulus to come out uh, from the Chinese authorities. Uh, there are a couple of uh, important uh, meetings that are coming out and, you know, we continue to watch that. And if there's any signaling in terms of where the economy is headed, but, um, you know, uh, as of now, again, you know, we think it's really just too early to see uh, this market bottoming out anytime soon. And I'm sure we'll pay uh, much more attention to China in the future and see what happens there. But for now, let's move on to another Asian region, which is or country, which is Japan, where there's also uh, a lot, more, a lot of interesting things going on, especially around their key figures and the way that the Bank of Japan will uh, handle those. Could you sort of outline the the landscape of of Bank of Japan and 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 what they're looking at right now, uh, for me? Um, yeah, sure. So I think uh, particularly, uh, you know, in, interesting to watch Bank of Japan because it has been an outlier in the global monetary policy space uh, for a very long time, because um, especially over the last um, uh, year or two, because of its um, massive easing that has continued despite the global monetary policy cycle turning to, um, you know, a tightening cycle, really. Uh, so, I mean, they have, a, obviously, they have multiple tools uh, to kind of address uh, the deflation that the economy has had been suffering for three decades or so. Um, uh, some of those tools have already been tweaked, particularly, as I would say, the yield curve control, uh, where they kind of try to 
pull up the long-term rates uh, because the short-term rate in Japan is pegged at uh, minus 0.1%, a negative, which is, this is what the Bank of Japan pays to financial institutions that have funds parked at the central bank in the current account. Uh, so in effect, actually, the BOJ charges them for putting uh, funds at the central bank uh, just to encourage them to lend. But when the short end rate is minus 0.1%, uh, the long end rates also dip. So just to avoid that, they have a yield curve control policy in place and they have been trying to increase their uh, tenured uh, um, JGB, the tenure yield targets. Um, they, they tweaked it three times in the last year. Uh, because high inflation and just the global surge in yields pushed investors to kind of test the limits. Um, so, you know, the yields continued to touch the ceiling. So central bank had to buy more and more bonds to defend that ceiling. So now uh, we are at a 1% target for 10-year uh, uh, bond yields, but uh, that's a flexible target. So I'm uh, not sure what that means, but it's just that, you know, yeah, uh, there is a little bit of a leeway that the Bank of Japan has left itself with its recent moves um, so as to kind of, you know, so that the uh, the yield, even if it touches 1%, they might allow it to go a little bit above that. Uh, but of course, like you said, yeah, you know, uh, inflation, um, uh, while it did look like that inflation was back in Japan, recent numbers have been less impressive. Uh, we have seen um, that uh, inflation has gone back uh, lower. It's not obvious. It's still above the 2% target, but it's weakening uh, month on month. So uh, there are doubts whether that inflation was really wage and consumption driven or whether it was only related to the supply chain shocks and the weakness that the yen saw last week because of the uh, uh, you know, yield differentials between uh, the, the Fed and the BOJ. Uh, so in effect now, yeah, I mean, the big focus is whether those inflation numbers demand that the Bank of Japan should normalize policy at this point. Uh, I mean, in our opinion, I mean, of course, uh, there are way too many risks uh, for the Bank of Japan to do anything at that at this point, uh, you know, there are risks from uh, coming from financial stability. So maybe something like uh, a Silicon Valley Bank kind of a crisis, because a lot of uh, banks, a lot of uh, financial institutions have bought uh, long term bonds over these decades of low interest rates. So the moment you increase interest rates here, they will obviously suffer a lot of valuation losses, um, you know, mark-to-market losses. Uh, so I think that's something that is really key for consideration. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, there's also risks around the fact that the Bank of Japan could face higher interest expense. Like I said, you know, right now they are actually charging financial institutions to put money uh, into the central bank. But if they increase rates, then they will have to obviously pay interest expense on bank reserves, and that will be a cash flow burden for them. Um, and most importantly, you know, we are entering um, a period of potentially slower global growth. Japan being an exporter will be impacted by that. And uh, it is also an important election year for Japan. So that means that fiscal stimulus will be needed. And when you need fiscal stimulus, um, you know, the, um, but most of 
the government bonds are held by the BOJ. So an increase that would, you know, an increase, uh, a normalization policy would mean an increase in interest burden. So that would eat up the whatever fiscal space is available or will be needed potentially this year. So, so too many risks, I think, to take into account, too many considerations to take into account, uh, which kind of leads us to believe that the BOJ will be extremely gradual and extremely moderate with any move that they were to make um, in this space. I guess there's also a sort of historical reference for the Bank of Japan that that Jap- Japan has been without or unable to to increase its inflation for so many years, almost decades, uh, that they are, are probably reluctant to do anything to to end in that situation again. I mean, there has obviously been a challenge for the corporates to really pass on any price increases uh, to the consumer. Uh, so whatever energy costs uh, went up, um, uh, they haven't been really passed to the consumer because the Japanese consumer has never been used to seeing an increase in prices. And there was a fear of loss of consumption demand if they were to pass on those prices. So certainly, and that has um, obviously kept inflation and wages quite slow. I think the big thing really to watch for the Bank of Japan now is whether those wage negotiations, they have annual wage negotiations and the results of those come out sometime in March or April. Uh, so they are, they are really waiting for that to see if the wage price spiral has uh, you know, uh, has been started in Japan. Um, there are obviously reports that companies are able to pass on some prices now and will be increasing wages as well. Uh, the government is also pushing that. Uh, but I think, yes, you, like you said, I mean, it's been so many uh, years of deflation that uh, changing the mindset of the consumer here will be the most important aspect to bring about a more structural change. What if we look at it from a more market-relevant uh, perspective in terms of, for instance, the U.S. dollar versus the yen or and, and, and the outperformance, the general outperformance of Japanese equities? What I, Now you say that they'll probably be pretty gradual in, in what they're doing, the Bank of Japan, but what, how do you envision that will reflect on the markets? Uh, so if I take it in terms of uh, the FX implications, like you said, you know, I mean, I have uh, written in the quarterly outlook and uh, spoken about it a few times that Japanese yen is a BOJ problem, but it has a Fed solution. So that really is the key here. You know, over the course of this year, we know that uh, U.S. yields are going to go down so that gap between U.S. yields and Japanese yields is going to narrow which will be quite supportive of the yen, which is obviously from a valuation perspective as well, very cheap. Now, the big question is what happens in the next few weeks, right? And um, uh, we think rate volatility is really important to consider here when you expect yen strength for 2024. And as our bond strategist um, Althea has been writing that uh, we can expect uh, a lot of you know uh, volatility in the rate space, given geopolitics, given a heavy election calendar as well this year. Uh, so that could continue to fuel a weaker yen. So while we are waiting for that yen strength to come through, I think the tactical picture for the yen is still bearish. 
But of course, we have to be mindful of intervention risks. Um, the Japanese authorities usually intervene if yen is getting too weak. Uh, so uh, somewhere around the 150 level is where traders start to get nervous about that intervention risk from Japanese authorities. Uh, so I would say, you know, still bearish yen, but of course, you have to be mindful of that 150 level on dollar yen. Uh, structurally, like I said, yes, uh, you know, there's a lot of room for the uh, for the yen to rally this year. But uh, if if we kind of pile into those long yen positions now, it is a huge negative carry. Uh, so that means I think uh, that uh, uh, markets still need to wait for more signs of confirmation that um, uh, any potential move from the BOJ is likely. And like I said, I think the biggest factor to watch there will be the spring wage negotiations. Um, if there are hints that, you know, we have we see wage growth of, say, 3 to 4 percent, that is a positive sign. Uh, and that will uh, fuel the markets to start pricing in some amount of normalization. And probably that will be a time of uh, more favorable time to start piling into those long yen positions. But you also mentioned uh, Japanese equities, and that's been such a huge focus since um, the start of last year, right? I think the first article we wrote on Japanese equities was in what, January or February 2023. Um, there's been a huge range of catalysts over there from shareholder-friendly reforms to, uh, you know, geopolitical play. And uh, also a lot of focus went into uh, Warren Buffett's uh, really nod to Japanese equities, increasing his exposure there. Uh, so I think um, uh, that that obviously resulted in a lot of strength uh, in Japanese equities last year. November, December, we did see a little bit of, you know, sideways trading. Um, because yen started to strengthen on expectations that the Fed will cut rates this year. Uh, so that when the yen strengthens, it weighs on Japanese exporters' earnings. And that obviously gets re reflected in the equities performance as well. Uh, but given my gen the yen view that I just uh, shared, you know, we do not expect a sharp appreciation for the yen. Uh, I think that means that this rally in the Japanese stocks potentially has some more room to run. Um, you know, China pessimism continues and then we don't expect the BOJ uh, to deliver something big uh, this year. So um, that that does mean that could support uh, Nikkei uh, still. But I would be wary of, you know, gains reaching as much as last year. So last year, Nikkei was up, what, 20 percent or something. I would think it would remain tough to kind of get there because eventually later this year, yen is likely to rally and that will likely come to cap the outperformance of the Japanese stocks as well. I think that was everything I had on, on my piece of paper. Is there anything I'd forgotten, Charo? Well, from a very macro lens for this week, I think really, you know, these are some of the things to focus on, you know, US exceptionalism story, what the ECB does, what the Bank of Japan does, but like the Bank of Japan announcement will already be out before the the this uh, episode goes live. But anyway, what we've shared today is more longer term implications and the, the bigger view around yen over the course of this year as well. Uh, so that's still relevant. And uh, yeah, I think uh, the earnings season as well uh, coming up uh, in a big way in uh, this week, but more so going into next week as well. This was everything I brought with me for today. Thank you, Charu, for joining us and making us all smarter. We'll be back with another episode later this week where Peter and I will dive into the earnings seasons. 
Once again, thanks for listening on behalf of everybody here at Saxo. This is the Saxo Market Call. My name is Soren Otto. Happy trading. <laughs>